Primary Care Knowledge Boost COVID-19 Staff Risk Assessments. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. The next few episodes we're doing are focused all around the changes in primary care at the moment. So we're starting with a current hot topic of staff risk assessments. Yes, exactly. Uh, so today we're joined by Dr. Juida Idu and practice manager Gina Bird from different practices in Greater Manchester. Uh, we get their perspectives on practically doing staff risk assessments at the minute and some of the changes that they've implemented in their practices as a result. Yeah, and within our discussion, we cover some of the different types of risk assessment tools that are available at the moment and how they can be used, as well as talking about different resources that are available for Greater Manchester GP practices. So yeah, we hope you enjoy. All right, so now, um, would you mind introducing yourselves? So my name is Gina Bird. I'm a practice manager at Lockside Medical Centre in Staley Bridge. I've worked here for 25 years, but only been doing the practice manager role for 12 months. Uh, and my name is Dr. Juida Idu. I'm a, a local Stockport GP at the Alvinley Family Practice. I've been a GP there for more than 20 years and uh, I'm quite a proud Mancunian. I was born in Old Trafford and I'm a City fan. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to edit that out. <laughs> really resting. So uh, why are we talking about staff risk assessments today? So I suppose the context has been quite a worrying trend that we've been seeing over the past few months. There's been a huge amount of concern and fears around the disproportionate amount of deaths that we're seeing amongst our BAME colleagues. Yeah. Mm. Um, we know that 44% of our doctor or medical workforce are from a BAME background, but that 95% of the deaths from doctors have been from that same background. We also know that almost 20% of our nurses are from a BAME background and 64% of those deaths from COVID, again, have been from those BAME colleagues. So because of that disproportionate amount of, of deaths and that real disparity that we're seeing, it's, it's raised concerns enough for Simon Stevens to write out to all the NHS organisations to start to look at how we do individual risk assessments because we want to really protect our colleagues. Yeah. Um, and in the terms of kind of primary care, kind of focusing down on that, what are practices being expected to do in terms of these staff risk assessments? So I suppose with regards to individual risk assessments and based on that sort of concern, we started to look at some of the sociodemographic factors that are actually related to these causes of death and what we've started to understand. And we've got to remember with a caveat that this is evolving evidence. So there isn't strong clinical consensus nationally for one perfect way of doing it so a number of different ways have evolved but it's understanding that it seems to be related to age there seems to be a disparity between men and women men tend to be more at risk there's a relationship with obesity as a separate risk factor vitamin d levels if they're deficient as opposed to just low mm -hmm. And, and whether or not individuals have specific long-term conditions, a bit like the at-risk ones we know of that we've already done with our patients on our remis searches. So patients that we would identify from the shielding group, the at-risk group, um, some of those long-term conditions are obviously apply to our staff as well. It's those sort of emergent information. And then we also know that if you're black, you're four times more likely to die of COVID than if you're from a white British background. 
and three times more likely to die if you're Pakistani, Bangladeshi or Filipino and twice more likely to die if you're from an Indian background. So there seems to be some sort of disparity and not all of it can be explained by sociodemographic factors. So there's something around the exposure to the environment and the viral load that some of our colleagues are being exposed to. Mm. Have you got anything to add in terms of what you're being expected to do as a practice manager in terms of these risk assessments? So the risk assessments, it's just to give all the staff a scorecard and they can self-assess themselves and then pass that back to myself where we um, set up a meeting, which will then talk about mental health issues, go through the scorecard to see whether the mild, moderate are at high risk and then go from there really to see what we need to put in situ for that individual person. Lovely, which we will talk about that in a little bit. And is there any, any, any help in Greater Manchester to help practices be able to do these risk assessments? Yeah, we've been sent quite a few different scoring cards, questionnaires. I've had about three different ones and then I've just picked the one that I think that would be best for, the, for our staff. Mm-hmm. And where have they been sent from? So in Greater Manchester, we have acknowledged that we need to do something around assurance for protecting staff. So we have written out to all practices and we've sent some information regarding the availability of different tools. So there's one that's endorsed by the Welsh Government and endorsed by the British Association of Indian Doctors. There's the SARD tool, which has been developed by Mojiva and colleagues in HMR. Um, And there's other tools now emerging through NHS employers are highlighting them to us. So we'll be sending out a best practice guide to practices, a template that they can use and to support our practice managers, because it's quite a difficult and sensitive conversation, I think, to have. A lot of my staff have been really anxious and it's an individual risk assessment. So although it gives a different scoring to ensure we recognise the risk to BAME colleagues, it is an individual risk assessment for all our colleagues. So there's quite a lot of support there with those tools. There's support around the best practice guidance and there's emerging evidence through Public Health England as well and NHS employers and also the Faculty of Occupational Medicine are producing some excellent guidance as well. So there's three places you can sort of be signposted to to look for. But the key thing is, as Jean has done in her practice, is yes, we're using the SAR tool at Alvinley. And we're asking staff to potentially look at it for self-score, but then it's having that very sensitive and individual conversation. And Kay is talking through in terms of not just how they score, but actually how they're feeling, what kind of impact it will have, how they feel about their family and loved ones at home. There's a lot of that consideration that needs to go into it and also as Gina says it's around the offer of additional well-being support Mm. so signposting and keeping that psychological safety aspect there for our employees so making sure they feel they are genuinely supported and listened to because it is quite a a worrying time and anxious time for staff. Yeah and that's just within the practice because obviously we've had to change so much how we work in practice you know we've gone round into each room and said like for the social distancing Mm. there's only two people allowed in this room there's only three people you know Normally, we'd have our lunch together. There'd be 12 of us sat in the education room, but that's not allowed anymore. So, like, the well-being of the staff in that respect, the morale has gone down. And and you do, you walk past people and say, how are you? How do you feel today? But you do need that one-to-one conversation with them. Exactly. It just feels like there was a lot of information coming from a lot of different places. And how do you go about making the decision about what to use? 
I mean, I had three different ones and I asked the partners here at Lockside which one I should use and they just put it down to me. So I just used the one that was more user-friendly for the staff. Mm-hmm. Is that the same in your practice, Juida? I think we looked at a few of them and I suppose we wanted to use the SARD tool because it's named after a colleague in Greater Manchester who passed away and we know the colleagues personally who'd worked on it. Yeah. So it was really more of a perhaps an emotive decision if I'm honest not very evidence-based but I think we also felt from a pragmatic perspective it was possibly the best tool that was applicable to general practice Uh, but as I said the evidence is emerging and evolving and it's based on what we've had experientially just now so it might be another tool will evolve over the next coming months and we'll start to score differently and that's why review is really important and keeping in touch with your staff is really important And were all the tools that you looked at to compare, were they sort of the same type of assessment? So the scoring systems were scoring for the same things, like you say, age, ethnicity. Were there any discrepancies there? There were a couple of discrepancies, but they all covered the same topic. So there was also pregnancy as well. Mm. And and there's been additional guidance from the Royal College of Midwifery and Nursing around if you're 28 weeks pregnant, um, you should have no face-to-face contact at all okay. so that you almost treat it as a shielded colleague. So, um, But they, they covered the same topics, but some of the scores were slightly different. And I think it's a case of working through the one that you're most comfortable with. And so staff members that you have that are already in that shielding cohort, did you still do risk assessments for them or do they need risk assessments? My knowledge is that if they're shielding, that they have to follow national guidelines and stay at home. So I wouldn't send one to any member of staff that were shielding. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you read the front page of the SAR tool, it does actually say that for somebody who's already been classed as being shielded, you continue to follow that safe practice for them. And that's really difficult when you've got a colleague. So we've got one of our staff members who is in the shielded group, but also we can't provide suitable adaptations for them to work remotely. So again, from their well-being perspective, that's quite challenging. Mm-hmm. I think, again, it's it's around making sure you really are looking after your staff. And we've got this member of staff on a WhatsApp group and keeping constantly in touch and sometimes delivering a pizza (laughs) it's exactly true though you don't want them to feel like they're out of the loop as well for something that they can't control it's uh, yeah it's really important yeah we've got a member of staff that's shielding but she's been able to work remotely Mm -hmm. but then we have had problems because obviously they're working on a laptop which sitting wise and not being able Mm -hmm. to lift the screen up or not having a big enough screen so we've had to do quite a few adaptations Mm My other question was in mine was just about vitamin D. Is it in any of the risk assessments or anything? Yeah, so the SARD tool specifically refers to vitamin D testing. And although it's not a must do, we felt from a best practice perspective, it would be helpful because of that early indication that if you've got a deficient level of vitamin D, you're more likely to have a severe episode of COVID. So If we just say a blanket dose of vitamin D for everyone, that might not be enough to meet the levels required to get somebody beyond deficient. So it really depends on each locality and how they can manage their logistics and organise themselves. If you really can't access appropriate vitamin D testing, it's around then having a conversation and there's a score for it. You'll automatically score one on SARD, but you can also look at 
sort of recommending a vitamin D over the counter for that individual. Again, I think if it was myself or my family or loved one, I'd actually want to know if they're deficient because the dose is much, much higher and treatment exactly. dose is much higher. So um, we're asking localities to look at it. But again, because it's not a robust evidence base, we can't make it a must do. But I, I sense that it's the right thing to do at the moment. Okay. Thank yeah. you. That's great to hear. I'm glad I asked that. And just still thinking about that process a bit before we move on, the uh, COVID antibody tests. If somebody in your practice has had an antibody test and is positive, does that affect your risk assessment? Do any of the tools talk about that or is that a conversation people are having in your practices? It's not covered in any of the tools because when they were written, I don't think they took that into account. But there has been some guidance now come out around the antibody testing. Or if you have a positive swab, you tend to still treat that person if they're symptomatic the same way. They isolate for seven days. If they're antibody positive and they're asymptomatic and it, and you've done the test, say, five weeks earlier, you would still risk assess that individual because we're not certain whether you are genuinely immune to COVID if you've got an you know a positive test so I don't think at this stage we're confident that you should avoid doing a risk assessment just because somebody might have some antibodies to it you should yeah. actually still protect that individual and that's how we're sort of dealing with that because they can't be guaranteed not to catch a second dose of COVID for want of a better word yeah Brilliant. So say we've done the risk assessment now and we've got them all back and um, we've identified our highest risk staff and we've had that conversation with them one to one. What's the next step? What sort of procedures um, are, are you guys putting in place in your practices for people who high, are higher risk? So I would try and see if they could work from home first off, but then if not, try and obviously socially distance them, do the video consultations and, and not have any patient face-to-face appointments we're doing pretty much the same but there's a few additional things so we're now looking at patients wearing masks to actually reduce the viral exposure to both the patient and the clinician we've looked also at um, trying to move people shifts so if they use public transport that they go at a time where it's less busy Mm. which is been okay because none of our staff work a 12-hour shift so we, we've been able to move people around where some of our staff walk to work because they're local and that's okay but mm-hmm. if if you're using public transport there's an option of slightly changing your shifts to quieter bus times and again the same thing around making sure if you can work remotely that you do it's difficult if you can't apply the full adaptations to somebody who's already got significant physical disability, which is what we've had with one of our shielded colleagues that we just cannot, it isn't possible to adapt their home. So um, it's offering all those options. And um, our colleagues who are moderate risk, we're looking at making sure that they potentially may have enhanced PPE, so FFP2 rather than just a surgical fluid resistant mass. Yeah. The other thing I hadn't sort of covered um, it just worth noting is that some of the emerging evidence around the disproportionate number of deaths is because some colleagues have felt that they couldn't raise concerns and some colleagues have felt uncomfortable that there may be repercussions if they raise concerns now I think that's unlikely in general practice because we're quite small organizations we're work very much like a family don't we a family unit or a family practice 
appears to be some of the emerging information and feedback that the BMA are getting from larger organisations. But it's important as part of that one-to-one assessment, you remember to give the option of a freedom to speak up guardian if somebody is starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable and make sure they have that avenue. Mm because yeah, like you say um with family practices i guess there's it's a smaller environment than some of the bigger places the hospital environments i guess that means that there's go- might be a fair amount of variation in terms of how much comfort and how much functionality there is in in those relationships and sometimes like you say saying there sarah i think the smaller is nice because it is smaller but i think in some ways if you know the people very well it can be hard to to criticize yeah. people that yeah. you know very well yeah um, and what about people who've been um, who haven't been doing face to face work so far because we haven't been doing full risk assessments until this period, so they've maybe not been doing it. But now on the risk assessment, they're deemed to potentially be okay to do face to face. Any suggestions about how we can go about making them feel less at risk or less vulnerable? I'm going to put longer appointments in for them. So if, if it was a temp, double the time that they're actually seeing the patient, so that they're not rushed. Yeah. Um, even even though they would, we would want the patients to be in and out quite soon, but at least they've got time to do the cleaning of the rooms yeah. and also PPE, like Dorita said. We need to wear PPE while they're seeing the patients. And then again, I think it's that conversation, having that sensitive conversation with that individual because they've obviously got used to being at home and working from home and there will be some anxiety if you're coming back into the workplace if you've previously felt you've been too much at risk so you've really got to be sensitive around exploring their concerns and their expectations and working out together a safe approach back to them coming back to work and we've got a colleague in the practice who we've for want of a better word treated as a kind of high risk colleague but now we've done the score they're moderate risk Um, So it's around asking them how they feel. They've still managed to do all their clinics remotely because they're a clinician. They've managed to do all their prescriptions, etc. But they actually want to come back a little bit into work because they've really missed that colleague interaction. But it's ensuring that we're putting in the steps to make them feel safe. So Gina, I think that's a great idea that you've given them longer appointments, enough of a gap to clean the room. Again, if they're going to do face-to-face, it's an FFP2 because this colleague now is moderate risk. And also that if they can continue to do video consultations and face-to-face is the sort of last resort because we have a number of low risk colleagues already who can do the face to face so it's working out within your entire practice how you can protect the more vulnerable or more at risk colleagues as well I think that leads nicely into Sarah's next question yeah (laughs) so what what do you do in small practices if multiple clinicians are higher risk and there's not enough low risk staff to do face to face appointments have you come across that yet so it doesn't affect my own practice but I am aware in Greater Manchester there are quite a significant number of single-handed GPs and I think given that there are a significant number of single-handed GPs who may fall into that moderate or high-risk category what we need to do is to be able to ensure whether it's through our PCNs working with our LMCs or CCGs how do we ensure that that face-to-face contact can be provided differently 
a number of the localities have uh, resilience hubs or federations or out of hours providers and it's working that through to ensure that no colleague is put under unnecessary risk it doesn't mean they're not going to work just means they're going to work remotely but it this will be where how our PCNs I think start to think about that support and I fully appreciate that might need some resourcing and therefore your LMCs and CCGs should be working with you to support you if you're in that category. Mm -hmm. So we do a daily reporting like rag scoring the surgery and if we need PPE or and things like that and that's based on staff as well so if that's sent to the CCG so hopefully we would get the backup if we needed somebody to do face-to-face appointments for us. That's what I was just going to say. So if you are out there and you're in that situation, then shit up the ladder. Don't feel like you have to cope with it yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, your LMCs will definitely work with you and support you as well as your CCG. The expectation is we don't want any colleague to come to harm. And I can't imagine people not wanting to support you with that, particularly because it's really being recognised now this risk assessment time feels like we're preparing for that new normal it's making me think oh I wonder how they're going to change our surgeries next to cope with the next stage really of general practice through this pandemic and I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about what that might look like we're just in the middle of actually redoing all our appointments and how patients contact the surgery and the GP's appointment lists we're doing a we're having a GP pool list and we're having a brand new way of working from the patient's look. We're not having appointments, we're having consultations, we're getting rid of the appointments and hmm. it's helped because obviously the patients have had to educate themselves really because they've not been coming in, they've not been ringing up the surgery because they're scared to come into the surgery thinking that we're going to infect them. At the moment we're planning just as I speak, actually, they're in the other room now planning an absolutely brand new way of working. Mm. A lot of it being telephone triage, video consultations, and then probably like 10% of people being seen. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. I think GM are referring to it as build back better. And I think all practices want to really capitalise on what's been positive about COVID. And we never use remote or video consultations in the way we do now. It's been like three years of transformation in five weeks, hasn't it really? It has, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. And we we had about 800 patients who would come in and collect, physically collect their prescriptions. So we've moved everybody onto electronic prescriptions. um, So nobody comes in face to face. We don't have a receptionist at the desk at all. So we are looking at restoring some form of visible screen to to protect staff before they go back downstairs. But you only attend by appointment. And so we've really changed many things. And I would say only 20 to 30 percent of contacts are now face to face. Mm -hmm. So it's around changing changing that whole aspect of working and using technology differently. We do a lot of group consultations with our long-term condition patients. We have an allotment. We tend to do those consultations in the allotment and various places. So it's been lovely, but obviously we've not been able to do that. So we've started to do Zoom group consultations. Uh, We've started to use Facebook Live an audience with our advanced nurse practitioner, um, again, trying to really support. I think for us, the biggest thing is around patients have have managed to be pretty self-sufficient. 
they've managed to navigate a very complex health system and they've managed to look after themselves. So how do we capture that self-management? How do we capture that ability to support an individual to look after themselves? Because ultimately, that's what's going to reduce your demand in general practice. So our focus is very much on activating the patient. And that falls into my other hat around social prescribing and person-centered care. But it's what I'm mostly passionate about is around a really expert patient because if they're expert they're not going to be overly reliant on us Mm -hmm. and when they see us it's because they really need to see us so and we're exploring point of care testing one-stop shops we're starting to look at many different things that have worked well we've used drive-throughs and all sorts of different ways of working I don't know if we'll do drive-throughs anymore but uh, (sighs) But we are trying to really think of more innovative ways because we often use the term hard to reach for patients. And I've never liked that term because I don't think patients are hard to reach. It's because we haven't found a way to reach them. So it's how we become more innovative in that way. And Gina, I'd love to hear about the way you're managing your appointments and things yeah yeah absolutely yeah I think that's part of it isn't it is sharing what what are you all doing because we can we can all just cherry pick ideas that we think are brilliant so yeah yeah I agree with that I agree with way forward because all the practice managers of it within our PCN we're all throwing things at each other all all the time over these last what 10 weeks it's been amazing it has normally we just sit here and just get on with our own work and you know do it our way whereas this you know the pandemic has really brought us all together yeah. you know and now we're arranging to all go out on a night out somewhere and when it's all over when we can get together so yeah it's amazing definitely a new way of working which is positive yeah great teamwork <laughs> um, so in terms of kind of finishing then do you both want to just share what you want our listeners to take away from today's discussion so i would say take care stay safe don't be afraid of doing risk assessments because it's not a bad thing. It's a positive thing for the practice and it can be very helpful. It can be helpful for the practice as well as the members of staff. And yeah, everybody stay safe. Keep washing your hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I can top that. That's so lovely. Um, just remember, you're, we're all here trying to support each other. We're all here trying to do the best that we can for each other. And an individual risk assessment, whether you're an employer or a colleague or a co-worker, is really important and like Gina says don't be worried about doing them make it that opportunity to support the well-being of that individual staff member and don't treat it as an employer with your duty of care treat it as somebody who really wants to show they care beautiful messages oh thanks so much guys for chatting to us today that's really great thank you thank you you very much So that was absolutely lovely to talk to Joida and Gina today. Uh, What are your learning points that you've taken away from that, Lisa? Yes, they spoke so well on the subject, didn't they? Um, But I was I was really surprised by the disproportionate number of BM colleagues that are dying from COVID. Yeah, absolutely. It's so shocking and it does really highlight the need for robust risk assessments in general practice and a safe working environment. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, but it was nice to talk about thinking about the risk assessments um, as, a, as a nice opportunity to check staff well-being yeah. um, and to consider that, especially for colleagues that are having to continue to remote work or, or work in isolation. 
Yeah, and I really enjoyed the discussion about what Juida called building back better, talking about the opportunity that when we're setting up safer working environments for our high-risk staff to look at service redesign as a whole in general practice. Yeah, yeah, completely like trying to take this time to just change everything so that it works better in the future Um, because transformation is happening so fast at the minute. Why not just try and set up everything so it works well now when you've got the chance? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, um, we've got lots of different ways. You can contact us on Twitter and our handle is at PCKB Podcast. We've also got an email and that's primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get in contact anonymously and drop us feedback, then we have a survey that takes about a minute to fill out and we'll put the link in the episode description. Yeah, perfect. And um, as ever, if you like the podcast, tell a friend or share it in any way you feel. <laughs> Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.